this afternoon we're going to be covering is going to be more along the lines of a, uh, something of a lesson or lecture that we might have uh, put in our Sunday school hour rather than a regular type of a sermon as we usually would have in the afternoon service. And that's why I'm down here. I had some things I thought would be helpful to have on the whiteboard, and uh, so that's why we are uh, changing the format just a little bit this afternoon. But before we uh, launch into the study we're going to go into this afternoon, I would like it if you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to read the first two verses once again of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the majestic way in which this precious book begins, and we sense that we are especially involved in a chapter that is under great attack. And yet we do thank you that indeed the Bible does stand. Nothing will make it crumble. No scientific discoveries will disprove it. Nothing, O Lord, can cause your word to fail from its effect and from its power and from its truthfulness. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence in your word, that you would give us strength to understand and interpret what it says. We need your spirit to do these things. We pray that he would be with us even now, opening up things that are somewhat difficult to understand. We pray, Lord, for his help and for his grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 begins with the majestic statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, we are immediately informed that the earth in its original form was uninhabitable. And we might paraphrase the thought of verse 2 by saying that the earth which we now know it, which we now know at one time was in such a condition that mankind could not live upon it. That's the basic description that is given in Genesis 1 and verse 2. And then the rest of the chapter from verse 3 on, it tells us how God fashioned this earth into a habitable a well-ordered place, and how he then filled it with creatures, and how he also created man and woman to inhabit the earth. But before he transformed it into its final form, into the well-ordered world that we now read of later, externally at that time, before he began this work, the earth was a mass of fluid, completely dark, utterly incapable of sustaining life. And three things are said about it in verse 2. First of all, we are told that the earth was desolation and emptiness, or without form and void. And the Hebrew words tohu and bohu that rhyme together, they describe this place that's disordered, that is desert-like, uninhabitable. And then we read, secondly, that darkness was on the surface of the deep. And even though God's, uh, the, the next verse says that God created light, verse 3, it doesn't say that he created darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. And in some contexts, it can have a more sinister idea of evil or judgment. Men love darkness rather than, than light. In that context, it's speaking of, of they love sin. They love to conceal their sin. But in this place, it's simply saying that this was dark. There wasn't light. 
and plants can't grow. It was uninhabitable because of its darkness. And here in Genesis 1, given the fact that the Spirit of God is brooding over the waters, we can't understand this as something that symbolizes judgment or evil. It simply says that before God reshaped the earth, there was no light. The earth was completely dark. And this darkness, we are told, was on the surface of the, deep, of the deep. And in the end of the verse, we're told that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So the deep and the waters are referring essentially to the same thing. This implies that the earth in its original state was not in a solid condition. It was like a murky fluid cloaked in darkness, incapable of sustaining life. And then in the third place, the verse tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. As an eagle hovers over its young, the Spirit was hovering over the original creation with a nurturing intent. This afternoon, we're going to examine the first of three theories that relate to this second verse. And uh, these are attempts, these theories, to harmonize science and the Bible. And we're going to be disproving these theories. I gave you outlines, or you have outlines that have an outline of all three of these, these, seri- uh, these errors. And I thought that maybe in a miracle would happen, I'd get so brief that I could actually cover all three. But that's not going to happen. We're going to cover just the first. So you, can, you don't have to get quite so nervous here. It's going to be basically, hopefully, what we have on the front page of the outline there. And according to um, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, one of the qualifications of the elder is that he must be holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict or refute those who contradict. And first and foremost, this This includes the ability to refute unbelievers that contradict the word of God. But there are also teachings of well-meaning believers that contradict scripture. And even those teachings need to be exposed. This teaching is not necessarily rank heresy, but in some way it undermines the teaching of the Bible. And sometimes the theories that they propose are presented with very sophisticated arguments. And it's my aim this afternoon to refute these arguments without at the same time overwhelming you with all of its complexity. And I've struggled to make what I'm about to present as simple as possible. And I would just ask you to be praying with me as we open this up that I might be able to be simple as possible in this matter. And uh, yet the material that we're going to be covering, by its very nature, it's going to require that you, you think with me. And uh, so I ask you to pray and and, uh, struggle along with me. But with the books that flood the Christian marketplace that purport to give new ways of harmonizing the science and the Bible, I can't take it for granted that one of these books won't fall into your hands. And so as a faithful shepherd, I feel like I need to protect you against errors that are out there. And please understand why we're taking time to refute these theories. I'm convinced that there are no chapters in the Bible that are under such a barrage of attacks than the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. These chapters are the pillars upon which the whole Bible rests. And Satan knows if he can knock those pillars out, or if he can make it effective, those pillars, he's going to damage the whole Bible. And remember, too, that he's exceedingly sophisticated. He came with sophisticated arguments to Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. He uses scripture, and it sounds plausible what he brought to Jesus. 
He's able to transform himself into an, into an angel of light. And what better way to do this than to use something written by some kind of a professor of an evangelical seminary that we, that we respect. And he has succeeded in ripping the Orthodox Presbyterian Church over these creation issues. My dear friend Rob Hill has informed me of the many different views in the PCA over creation. And let's not think that as Reformed Baptists that we will never be subject to some of these controversies. So I plead with you to gird up the loins of your minds as we seek to examine one of these theories this afternoon. The truth is at stake. The Bible is on the line. So this afternoon we're going to take up one theory, and it's going to be the gap theory, also known as we could describe it as the ruin restitution theory. And I want to begin, first of all, by giving a description of the gap theory. And the first thing that we want to say about it is that it includes millions of years as well as six normal days. So that's a basic idea there. And the rise of the enlightenment of the 18th century, well, actually began in the 17th century, it involved the triumph of reason and science over authority, and especially authority of scripture, at least in the, sem in the schools. And the Enlightenment had prepared the way for the evolutionary theory of Darwin. And this required, of course, Darwin required millions of years for its explanation of the geological strata and all the fossils that are in that geological strata. And even Bible believers, they, they struggled when Darwinism first confronted them. Many of them had their presuppositions shaken. And so they invented various schemes by which they might squeeze these millions of years, even billions of years, somehow into Genesis chapter 1. And one of the most famous of these theories is the gap theory. Now, gap theorists, they believe in six normal length creation days. We're going to examine later on some of the differences over those creation days. But we're talking about controversies that relate to verse 2 here. So they have six normal creation days, but they have millions of years. So instead of stretching the days out like the day-age theory does, or denying that they're normal historical days like the framework hypothesis does, instead of twisting around everything about the days, they insert a gap of millions or even billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So that's the first thing. It's got millions of years, it's got also six days. And then, secondly, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is a gap. And this gap includes a great catastrophe. According to Weston Fields, who was the author of the definitive anti-gap book, Unformed and Unfilled, the traditional or classic gap theory can be summarized in this way. And I want to quote from this excellent book. He says, In the far distant, dateless past, God created a perfect heaven and perfect earth. Remember, he's representing what the gap, Gappus would say. God, first of all, created a perfect earth. Satan was ruler of the earth, which was peopled by a race of men without souls. And that's not, that's, some of them would say that, some of them would not say that. But eventually, Satan, who dwelled in a garden of Eden composed of minerals, Ezekiel 28, rebelled by desiring to become like God, Isaiah 14. And because of Satan's fall, sin entered the universe and brought on the earth God's judgment in the form of a flood. And this is indicated by the waters of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. It's all flooded. And then after that was a global ice age when the light and the heat from the sun were somehow removed. 
And all the plant and the animal and the human fossils on the earth today, they date from this Lucifer's flood, as it might be called, and they don't bear an, an immediate genetic relationship to the plants and the animals and the fossils that we have now. So you get the picture here. There was this perfect earth, and then there was some kind of rebellion that Satan led, and then there was a curse upon the earth and destruction, and what we have described in verse 2 was the results of that destruction. And so it was thought that in this way, the vast ages of the earth that are claimed by these 19th century uniformitarian geologists, they could safely be accepted without threatening the integrity of the Genesis account. And supposedly, verse 2, it pictures a judged, ruined cosmos without form and void. And while beginning in verse, verse 3, the rest of the chapter then is a recreation or a restitution of what was ruined. That's why it's also called the ruin restitution theory. Ruin before verse 2 and then the restitution in the rest of the chapter. And this is why this theory is called, as I said, just the ruin restitution theory. Now, verses 3 and 31, they supposedly describe not the original creation of the earth then, but the recreation or the restitution of the earth. And the defenders of this theory, they argue that the word translated was at the beginning of verse 2 should be translated became. You'll see now, this shifts the whole meaning of the verse. If we read, the earth became without form and void. It wasn't this way before, but it became this way, and darkness was on the face of the deep, or darkness became on the face of the deep. That's the idea that they have in the interpretation of that verse. Now, just a word or two about the origins of this theory. So, although the gap theory had been advocated in one form or another spasmatically for a, a period of time, it was first popularized by an eloquent preacher, Thomas Chalmers, a brilliant preacher who's the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, and he started promoting this theory. He was a, he was a, a brilliant man. I've got his set of 25 volumes of his works. And as a very young pastor in 1804, and this is seven years before he became an evangelical, he startled his congregation by telling them that millions of years was compatible with the Bible. And in 1813, in response to Georges Cuvier, his concept of geological catastrophism, he began to argue against the day-age view. And we're going to get to that later on, the idea of stretching out these six days to six ages. He argued against that and instead substituted the gap theory. And this theory was then elaborated in 1876 by George Pember in his book, Earth's Earliest Ages. And in the preface to the third edition of that book, Pember's motive is very clearly stated. I want to just quote here. He says that about this theory that while it absolutely disables the attacks of geology on the book of Genesis, it casts no discredit upon science itself. So you see, we can get it so that it, 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 the geology can't attack scripture anymore. It's, a, it's an attempt to try to put these things together. And then beginning in 1917, it was enormously popularized in the footnotes of the Schofield Reference Bible. And to my knowledge, no reference Bible has been distributed in the English-speaking world that's been so influential. In 1967, this Bible was revised, and in the new Schofield Reference Bible, and by the way, this is the Bible that was given to me when I graduated from high school, and it's got detailed notes in there giving six different reasons proving this gap theory. And so it was even held on to in this second edition, we might say, of the 
Schofield Bible. And then in 1970, Arthur Constance's book came out, Without Form and Void. And this is the most definitive book defending this view. It left no stone unturned. It's, to my knowledge, the most scholarly, thorough, and lengthy defense of the gap theory ever published. But thankfully, Constance didn't have the last word on the subject. Because a few years later, 1976, Weston Fields published the book Unformed and Unfilled, which is a detailed refutation of Arthur Constance's book. And I find that book to be very helpful. Not Constance, but Fields' refutation. And so now I want to come to the refutation of this gap theory. And the first thing that I want to say is that it doesn't satisfy the demands of uniformitarian geologists. Even though the gap theory originated out of a desire to accommodate millions of years presupposed by the evolutionists, the theory never satisfied their demands. Maybe I could just ask you, do you know what uniformitarianism is? What is uniformitarianism? Yes, Tony. Okay. All right, so that's, that's a basic assumption of, of the evolutionary scientists. That's why they, they trust in radiocarbon dating and so on. That They assume that everything, there never was a change in the history of the, of the universe. And Peter describes that. He says, in the last days they're going to scoff and they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue just as they once were. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. So these uniformitarian geologists... Uh, not genealogists, uniformitarian geologists, they reject the idea of any kind of global flood, whether it's the biblical flood of Noah's day or the imagined Lucifer's flood of the gap theory. So what happened? Students that were Christians, they bought into this theory, and they went to secular universities. And they thought, well, we have an answer to this evolution. We've got this gap theory. This explains it all. It puts it all together. And when they found that this didn't impress these evolutionists at all anyway, uh, because many of them saw the, the theory for what it is, an ill-formed attempt to fit the Bible into the straitjacket of, of modern science. And so because Christian leaders had effectively made science authoritative over Scripture as they came up with this theory, we've got to make Scripture adjusted a little bit to fit science. That basically makes science to be the primary authority. And science became their god. And when science then told these former so-called Christian students that virgins don't conceive and dead men don't rise and homosexuality is natural, science tells you all these things. And science is abs it's the absolute authority. It's the newfound god you see that they have. And therefore, they gave up, therefore, their ideas of creation. And so what was to help some of these young people actually ended up hindering them. And it, it, it doesn't satisfy the demands of uniformitarians anyway. But then secondly, and this is where we get into a little bit of, of complicated discussion. It reads into Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 what is not there. And this theory is a perfect example of what Douglas Kelly calls an exegesis of desperation. You're desperate to get it to say something, so you make it say what you want it to say. And it reads into Genesis 1-2 some things that are just simply not there. And the first of these things that it reads into that verse is the translation became instead of the translation was. 
Advocates of this theory, they argue that Genesis 1-2, instead of being translated that the earth was without form and void, it should be translated the earth became or had become without form and void, and thereby indicating a tremendous transition from verse 2, verse 1 to verse 2. Verse 1, it was perfect, but then something happened. It became without form and void. Destruction hit. Judgment came. And yet this reading, it violates the grammar of the Hebrew original. Now the Hebrew letter wav, and this is on the board here. You see it looks like an L with just a little hook at the top. That word, that little letter, it's, now remember Hebrew goes backwards, so it's attached to words always. It's never out there by itself in the, in the Hebrew. And uh, this, this letter, wow, it means and. And it's found at the beginning of verse 2. And the earth was, out, was without form and void. But there's an important difference between its meaning when it's attached to a verb and when it's attached to something that's not a verb. And this is a very important dis distinction here. When it's attached to a verb, you see a verb you can be here, and then the verb will be, be attached onto it, then what it becomes is the wow consecutive. And this is the type of construction that's used in historical narrative. And such and such happened, and then in such and such happened, and then such and such happened. It's giving the story, the next step of the story. And that's why it's called the consec wow consecutive. It's describing consecutive events that happen. But when it's attached to a nonverb, it becomes wow explanative. And it is not something that describes any kind of action, but it describes something that exists. And, uh, and so we have in, in verse 3, and maybe I could just flip this over here at this point. Okay. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 is the wow explanative. It's with a noun, with a nonverb, I should say. And so, look with me at what we have here. Let's read that verse, verse 2. The earth was without form and void. And then how does the next clause introduced? And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so what we have here is a nonverb. And in this verse, it's describing... What, the condition, the earth was this, darkness was this, the spirit was this. And in each case of those statements in verse 2, it's attached to a non-verb. It's not describing historical narrative, the next step in the narrative. Whereas later on, when you come to uh, the next few verses, verse 3, for instance, the wow is connected to said in the original, and God said. It's not attached to God, and God said is it's right before God in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's, to, it's attached to the verb, and God said. And then it's attached to, it was, it's attached to the word light in, in later on. And then in verse 4, it's connected with saw, and it's connected with divided. It's consistently put together with the verbs, describing the next step in the history of the narrative. And if it was the intention, you see, of the Holy Spirit to introduce a new action that has taken place, now a destruction in verse 2, the vowel consecutive would be used. And instead, in all three clauses of verse 2, 
It's this little word and or wow is joined to a noun. And so in each of these clauses, these are explanatory. In other words, they explain the condition of the earth when it was first created. They don't introduce any new actions into the account. Therefore, became is not a right translation. It doesn't tell you what happened to it. It became something. That's an action. It just was. It existed in this condition. These were the three conditions, and verse 2 described those three conditions. And if wow is, is joined, you see, with a noun, this requires, if this became, became. If this, is, if this is the way it should be translated, then if we come to chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says that Adam and Eve were naked, we would have to translate it, and Adam and Eve became naked, which is obviously not what's there. Didn't, all of a sudden, they didn't become naked at that point. And then uh, also uh, we read that the serpent, he was more subtle than the, any beast of the field, chapter 3 and verse 1. But we wouldn't translate it, and the serpent became more subtle than any beast. It's just explaining what he is. So you see the difference between how it's used with a verb to, 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 to describe actions and when it's used with a noun to describe just a condition that existed. And uh, you have another example in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3. Jonah arose and he went into Nineveh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. We wouldn't translate it, Nineveh became a great city when Jonah went into it. It was. It was just the condition of it when he went into it. And that's what we have in verse 2. It's just simply describing what the condition of the earth was when God created it. And here, as an aside, we have what I, a perfect example of what we call jot and tittle inspiration. We're talking about just, well, I have it on the other side, that, that wow, which is just basically a line with a little hook on the top of it. Remember the words of Jesus when he talked about not one jot or one tittle will pass until it's all fulfilled. This is a yod or a a jot. It's it's like an apostrophe that's used between letters in the Hebrew. And the tittle, here's the daleth and here's the resh, is that little tiny line there. There's just a little hook right on the end of it. And Jesus is saying these little tittles even are part of God's inspired word. And so the very way in which this little word, vav, just with one letter, how it's used, whether it's hooked with a verb or whether it's hooked with a noun, God inspired that difference. And it needs to be paid attention to as we seek to translate and understand the scripture. And then there's something else that they read into Genesis 1-2. And we've noted this in your outlines, a judgment in the words tohu wabohu. Desolation and emptiness are without form and void. Um, even though tohu, which is desolation, even though sometimes in the Bible it's used in context to describe the result of a judgment, in other places it's used in a morally neutral sense. It just describes something that's unfinished, not necessarily something that's uh, evil. For example, in Job 26 and verse 7, We read that God stretches out the north over the empty place, or empty space. There's the word tohu. And he hangs the earth upon nothing. That's an amazing verse right there, because before anybody had the science to know that the earth wasn't flat, that it was round, it was out in the space, it was already in the Bible with correct, correct science there, before these scientists ever discovered that. And yet it says here that he hung it over empty space, tohu. And certainly we don't mean that somehow the outer space is therefore evil, or it's under some kind of a a judgment that somehow tohu indicates evil. 
And in several other places, the word simply refers to the wilderness or the desert, and uh, the desert or wilderness, they just don't have life. It's what's missing from there to sustain life. That's the emphasis. And you can look it up in Deuteronomy 32, Job 6 and 12, and Psalm 107. And for centuries, Hebrew scholars, they've taken the view that Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 is not a scene of judgment. It's not describing an evil state because of something bad happening that all of a sudden there was this judgment and we had this catastrophe and all the dinosaurs died. Nobody thought about that. No, no Hebrew scholar ever dreamed that this was the case. They've been translating these Hebrews for hundreds of years and exegeting these verses. And nobody dreamed up that interpretation until this gap theory came along. And it simply reads into this verse something that's not there. It's highly unlikely that if there was a great catastrophe in the gap that is supposed that contrary to normal Hebrew idioms, it would have been, why would God hide it in this dubious verse and, and, and never talk about it for the rest of the Bible? This great catastrophe. And both the Old and the New Testaments, they make heavy reference to the flood, the universal flood. And why, if there's such a huge thing that happened to creation right at the very beginning, why is there no mention of it in the rest of the Bible? These people have just read it into Genesis 1 and verse 2. And then in the third place, the scriptures are used to, to, the, the scriptures that they use to buttress this view, they don't simply buttress or, or help this viewpoint. And the first is found right in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And maybe we could just read that verse while we're here in Genesis. We read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And then the New King James says, Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. But the old version, the old King James, reads it this way, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the gap theory advocates they argue that replenish, this implies that it was, that it was destroyed, it was emptied in its pre-Adamic state. And now it's being patched up again, it's being replenished or refilled. But the Hebrew verb that's translated replenish in the 1611 version, it simply means to fill. And it's translated that way in all the better modern translations. So the modern translations, they, they say he says in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the way most of the modern translations, all the good ones that I know of, translated that way. And centuries ago, though, when the King James was first translated, replenish had a little bit of a different meaning. And uh, basically, fill was to replenish. And so that, but now when we have this replenish, it's like something got emptied and now we've got to stock it up again. And, but that's not the meaning of the word in the original. It's simply that God filled something that was empty at the beginning, didn't have animals, I mean, didn't have human beings, and God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth with human beings. And another text that is used is Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. Maybe you could turn with me to Isaiah 45, 18. verse says, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it. And then here's the important part here, who did not create it in vain. And here's the word tohu, the Hebrew word, did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord 
and there is no other. And this is probably the major text that is cited outside of Genesis 1-2 in support of this gap theory. In the American Standard, the New American Standard, it says he did not form it a waste or a waste place. In the English Standard, the NIV, he didn't form it empty. And the argument of the gap theory proponents is that since God didn't create the earth to be void or uninhabited, therefore after the earth's first creation, it was made desolate, it was made void, it was made empty because of some divine judgment. But what Isaiah says is perfectly in accord with the traditional understanding of Genesis 1-2. The elements of the early earth, which were created out of nothing, they were only temporarily tohu and bohu, only temporarily without form and void or destruction and emptiness. It was the purpose of God to form the earth into a habitable place in the space of six days. And God didn't intend that this original tohu condition of the earth, that it would be desolate, that it would be empty, that this would continue. He didn't create it with the intention of, of it being... That it, remaining in, without life in it. But instead, he intended right from the very beginning that it would be filled with living things. That's what this verse is saying here in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. And so this is why he didn't allow it to remain in its original empty form, but instead over the space of six days he fashioned it, he filled it with living things, and he made it to be a beautiful home for the first man and the first woman. And this is what Isaiah 45, 18, as well as Genesis 1, 2 are saying. The reformer Capito, he compared the temporary bohu, tohu bohu status of Genesis 1, 2, he compared it to the, a baby that's in the womb in the early period of, of its gestation. And it's not a picture of fallenness, as the gap theory suggests, but rather lack of full development, like there, like an infant in the womb is not fully developed and it looks very different, especially in its early stages. And that's what we have here is we have an earth. It's, it's not judged because of some wickedness that happened, but it's just, it was without form. It didn't, it didn't, wasn't in a place that it could really uh, suitably uh, be the place for plants to flourish and for animals and for human beings to flourish. And then the third text that is often used is Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23. Maybe you could turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4. And actually, I want to back up beginning with verse 23. But the important verse is verse... Well, the important verse is verse 23. But to get the whole idea, we're going to read further. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form... And void, same language as Genesis 1 2. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down with the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. Now, there are some that have used this verse, verse 23, to support the gap theory because it has the same phrase, tohu wabohu, to describe the situation. And they say this was the result of a judgment here in Jeremiah, 
And so, obviously, it must have been a judgment back in chapter Genesis 1 and verse 2. And so Arthur Constance, for instance, he asserts that this phrase, without form and void, it must mean laid waste by judgment. And yet, this, I believe, to be a fallacious interpretation. The words simply mean unformed and unfilled. And in the context of Jeremiah 4.23, what is it talking about, the big context? It is talking about the Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem. And it's in a literary allusion to Genesis 1 and verse 2. And Jeremiah, what's he saying here? He is saying that this judgment is going to be so severe that it's going to leave the, the land like a desert. It's going to leave it uninhabitable. It's going to be like the earth before God fashioned it into its intended form and filled it with living creatures. And this is what we see at the end of the verses that I just read to you. Verse 25, I beheld, indeed, there was no man. You see, nobody can even live there anymore. All the birds even fled, verse, at the end of the verse. And indeed, the fruitful land was a wilderness. Nothing could grow there anymore. That's the picture that the prophet gives. And Jonathan Sephardi, in, in a, in a, uh, Jonathan Sarfati, that's the way he pronounces his last name, I think, He's written a large book on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And he gives, I think, a helpful illustration. He says, when I open my word processor, my document screen is blank. So blank means free from any text. There's no letters that are on, there's just a blank screen there. And in some contexts, the lack of text is because I haven't written anything. It's just blank because I didn't write anything. In others, it's due to a deletion of text. You would need to know the context to tell which. You couldn't tell from the word blank itself if I just said my screen was blank. However, a gapus type analysis of the word might include blank. It has to refer to text being deleted. You insist that's what it must mean. So the blank itself signifies a text deletion event even when none is stated. It just says that it's blank. And so that's what we have here. We have a statement about what it was lacking. And this doesn't necessarily mean that it was because of some great judgment that it was without this form. It simply indicates that it was in this unformed, unfinished fashion before God brought it to a beautiful completion at the end of Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis, or Jeremiah 4.23, it's describing a judgment that's so severe that it's, it's like a reversal of creation. The prophecy is of a condition in which the land is taken right back to its unformed state, unfit for man to inhabit. That's all it is saying. And then, in the fourth place, arguing against this theory, the scriptures clearly teach that death and decay came through Adam's sin. I want you to turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 5. If for some reason you, I didn't quite make this all, some of the other stuff clear, I hope you can at least get this point here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and what happened through sin? Death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, that is, they sinned in Adam. Death was a result, it was introduced into the world because of sin. But not only death, but also suffering. Chapter 8, and verses 20 and following. 
Paul says, he's describing the sufferings of this present time. And he says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now these verses, they teach that death and suffering and disintegration of the created order, it came how? It wasn't some pre-fallen state where Lucifer sinned and some pre-Adamic race sinned and God judged it. No, it's through Adam's sin. That's how it all came about. And even though Lucifer fell before Adam, obviously he had to because he was the serpent that tempted Adam, his fall did not bring death into the rest of the created order. It's never said that there in these passages. Because it says Adam, not Lucifer, is the representative head of the whole creation. He stands at the head of creation. And when Adam falls, he takes creation down with him. You and I and Adam, we are, we are the occasion of why animals suffer. And so the verses that we read in Romans chapter 8, they speak of the creation, the creatures experiencing the kind of pain even that a woman endures in childbirth. When I watch nature films, which I particularly enjoy, National Geographic and such, uh, such uh, channels, often the storyline is about predators and prey. And I'm sure that most of you have, have seen those stories. And sometimes the whole story is tracking the, the life of a lion. And so you're, you're kind of rooting for the lion because he's starving. He hasn't had a food for maybe two weeks. And yet you feel like, oh boy, I wouldn't want to be that little antelope either. And so you don't know who to root for. This, this lion that's going to starve to death, he doesn't get a meal. Or this other little animal that's going to get killed. And what does it depict? It depicts the bloody tooth and claw state that we're now in. That's how all these animals survive. They're eating one another. They're tearing each other apart. And this is painful. This is, this is the result of the curse. The food chain, it involves this. And all of this reminds us of what took place as a result of man's sin. But you see, the gap theory, it assumes that carnivorous predators and their prey, they were living and dying for millions of years before Adam was ever created. God says... It was because of what Adam did. But these theorists, you see, they, they figured out that they've got death and desolation and all that way back in that gap. And for millions of years, and that's how, how we have the dinosaurs, fossils, and all these other extinct creatures. But contrary to the gap theory, Romans 8 clearly says that the groaning and travailing together in pain is the result of the Edenic curse. The ground was cursed because of Adam. The creatures were cursed. The, the, the creation suffered together with man. And, it won't, and when man is totally restored in the new heavens and the new earth, then the, then the creation will be restored once again. And so the gap theory, it, it contradicts that whole teaching of Genesis, or excuse me, Romans 5 and Romans chapter 8. But then in the fifth place, in Genesis chapter 1, what God just made is called good on six different occasions. Again and again, you know that as you read through what God had created, for instance, in verse 4, we read after he saw the light that it was good, and he noticed that it was good, what he had just made. 
Verse 10, he called the dry land the earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called sea, and God saw that it was good. Six times what he had just done is pronounced, or he observed it being good. And then about the whole thing that he had created, including the man and the woman, in verse 31, it is called very good. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But you see, the gap theory, it proposes a judgment, a catastrophe, so severe that billions of creatures are being wiped out. Because of this, all these fossils that fill the geological strata. And in his excellent book, uh, Creation and Change, Douglas Kelly, who's professor of theology at Reformed Theological in Charlotte, he writes this, if the early, church, if the early earth bore the scars of a previous wreckage through a layer of judgmental sediment laced with dead fossils, how could he have pronounced it all very good? And, and what, do you, what do you see of these, these dinosaurs? These are not little chubby things that you would just kind of like to snuggle up to. These are things that have huge jaws and that are made to tear other animals apart. And if all this was happening and all that took place, you see, in this judgment... How can God say that's good? That's, that's a wonderful way for animals to exist, ripping each other apart. No. And in his excellent book, The Early Earth, John Whitcomb, he's written a lot of stuff about the flood and, and about creation. He says in his little book, The Early Earth, the gap theory must redefine the very good of Genesis 1.31. For Adam would have been placed as a very late arrival in a world that had just been destroyed so that he was literally walking upon the graveyard of billions of creatures, including dinosaurs, over which he would never exercise dominion. And so, obviously, this is a contradiction of the idea that everything is in a perfectly good state before sin came into the world. That's the teaching of Scripture. But how could it be good with this gap theory? But then in the sixth place, the gap theory contradicts the Sabbath command of Exodus chapter 20. Now, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. In verses 8 through 11, we have the Sabbath command. We remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And uh, the seventh day, uh, the specific prohibitions against your son, your daughter, your servant, etc. And then the reason for keeping the Sabbath day is in verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And this verse indicates that everything was created within six days. That's what it says. First of all, it says heavens and earth. Remember, as we opened up the meaning of verse 1, there is this word merism, which heavens and earth are two words joined together that describe the whole universe. That's what heavens and earth mean. He created the universe, but then he also created the seas, created all the creatures that live in the seas and upon the land. That's what this verse is saying. So what he did right at the very beginning and what he did on the other days, all of this was in six days. That's what Moses says. And that's the pattern you're supposed to follow as you would keep the Sabbath day. So the work of the six days of creation, then the original seventh day of rest, this is what we're to imitate. And notice that as we read this, that contrary to this teaching, the gap theorists, they hold that everything except man was made long before these six days of creation. 
And then it was kind of fixed up later on after it was judged, and that's what we have in Genesis chapter 1. And I might also say that the gap theory also has another related problem. If this theory is true, that we have no clear word from God about the original perfect world, which advocates of this theory suppose existed for millions of years. And if this is true, we know nothing of the order of events in the original creation, its features, its history, and we're told this is 99.9% of the history of the, of the earth. We know absolutely nothing about that. We only know something about the 0.1% or less than that of what has happened since then. And this seems to be contrary to what the Bible would give to us by way of explanation of creation and of the heavens and the earth and what is in the heavens and the earth. So this argument, I think, is uh, to me, is very persuasive that uh, this statement in Exodus 20 contradicts the idea of a judgment and of millions of years happening before those six days. But then one final argument. The gap theory, it postulates millions of years of life on earth without the light or without the sun because these were not created until the first day and until the fourth day. And millions of years, they're assumed by this gap theory to have taken place before this catastrophic judgment that required the existence. And all that would have required for all these dinosaurs, they got to eat plants, some of them. And some of them got to eat other animals. And all of this, it re would have required the sun. And, or at least some other source of light. But Genesis 1 tells us that light did not first shine on the earth until that moment on day one when God said, let there be light. That's when light sh first shone. And the sun and the moon and the stars are not created until the fourth day, verses 14 to 19. So how did all this abundant life exist that supported these massive creatures that we see in these fossils? How did this life exist without either the light or without the sun? Well, I hope that I've been able to convince you that this is not a theory that you want to embrace and that this is a theory that ought to be rejected. And I want to just conclude by just asking, what is the value of studying a theory? This, at this particular theory, not a lot of people believe it anymore. But I believe there's still some value in studying this theory. Can you think of what might be the value of what we've just done? I didn't know if I'd get any answers on this one. Anyway, let me tell you what I have in mind. Remember how this whole thing got started, this gap theory. It was out of a desire to show that science does not contradict Scripture. That's how it got started. It was a theory that was devised. It wasn't devised by atheist people. It was devised by Bible-believing Christians. They were the ones that came up with this interpretation. And... To a certain extent, we're sympathetic to the panic that they must have felt as evolution just, as it were, took over by storm, the universities and the schools and the books. And how are we going to answer this evolution? It seems to contradict everything we believe in the Bible. And how do we, how do we defend the Bible? And you can understand why this would have been something that would have put them into a kind of a panic. But the gap theory, it should serve as a model of what Christians should not do as they seek to speak biblical truth to a world that's held in the grip of humanism and an atheistic thought. This theory is a clear case of what happens when we allow science to interpret scripture. 
And here's a clear example of reading into Scripture what's not there in Scripture because we want to force this hasty compromise with atheistic evolutionary thought. And unfortunately, many well-intentioned evangelicals in the 19th century, they were too ready to adjust the teaching. You see what gets adjusted. It isn't evolution gets adjusted by this theory. It's scripture gets adjusted. You see what happens. And whenever we do this, we surrender the supreme authority of scripture. We're making scripture the thing that has to be changed a little bit, fixed up to, to fit science. And this is not to say, of course, that science has no place in our discussions or in our studies. The heavens and all of creation declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 tells us. And even pagans can see from creation that God exists, Romans chapter 1 tells us. And when science is subservient to scripture, it can be a valuable tool in even confirming the doctrine of creation. And we've We've delighted, therefore, in hearing these lectures from time to time when Andy McIntosh comes here. That's what he's doing. He's presenting scientific proofs of, of the doctrine of creation. But you see, he's not adjusting what Scripture has to say to, fix, fit, to fit the science. He's causing science to be the servant, Scripture to be the master. And thankfully, we now have a lot more research into what science says. And, and therefore, we don't have... Any excuse, especially compared to what happened back in the days of the Enlightenment. And so let's beware of surrendering the authority of Scripture to the authority of secular science. That's the lesson here. Let's beware of replacing the biblical Reformation teaching of sola scriptura, of scriptura subscienta, in other words, Scripture under science. And let's remember that no matter how much science that we have, no matter how much it confirms the teaching of Scripture, creation is always going to be an article of faith. It's never going to prove creation to such an extent that there's no need for faith. Evolutionists have to have a lot of faith, by the way. I think more faith than we have. We have a lot more on our side than they do. But let's remember, this will never, this will never be wiped out of the Bible. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Science is always changing, but the word of God never changes. The word of God abides forever. And praise be to our unchanging, faithful, true God. It doesn't change. The Bible stands, as we sang in that hymn that we used to introduce this lesson this afternoon. And significantly, the emergence of the intelligent design movement and books that such ones like Michael Behe wrote, The Darwin's Black Box, they've, in many ways, they've pushed Darwinism into retreat when, whenever those books have been read. And uh, this doctrine of intelligent design, it questions things that the Darwinists can only answer by faith. They don't have all the proofs on their side. And because of this, William Dembski, in his book, Mere Creation, and I don't buy into everything in the intelligent design movement, but in this statement, I think he makes something that's, I think, a helpful statement, and I want to close with this. He says, Gar Darwin gave us a creation story, one in which God was absent and unconnected and, and, and undirected the natural process, did all the work. That creation story has held sway for more than 100 years. It is now on its way out. In the end of Christendom, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, 
I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so, that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity that it has. I think that although I can't say that Muggeridge is a prophet, I think we can say that whatever happens in the future, whether evolution is more and more rejected, we can still have confidence that this book stands. This book will never be disproved. This book will be the judge of people that try to disprove it in the last day. This book is true, and its account is true, and we can be confident that the Bible stands, that the Word of God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we bless you, that you've given to us even clear proofs that theories that have been devised that uh, do not subserve the teaching of Scripture, but rather make Scripture serve science, that these theories more and more have been disproven. And we pray that you would, through this exercise we've gone through this afternoon, increase our faith in your word and give us confidence not to, in fear, capitulate to science and to those that we would seek to witness to that are out there in the world. Lord, you've given us even helps to help us in, in what we say to the world. The world can't help seeing what is all around them in creation. It's marvel wonder. The world is convinced by the Holy Spirit of judgment and the righteousness of the judgment to come. And, O oh Lord our God, we do pray that with these things in mind, that you would give us courage to state faithfully and truthfully what the Bible teaches and not compromise what it says, not adjust what it says in order to, to fit into the latest theory that's come down the pike. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to your word. May this church be a church, may it be a people that for generations can still commit to the word of God and still be faithful in upholding the teaching of Scripture. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would do this for the sake of Christ, your Son. We pray it in his name. Amen.